Well, good morning. Well, it's good to see you all this morning and made it safe and sound through the rain that we've had and the wet roads. I was thinking as I was studying and really just even this morning, we as a people are prone to extremes. Have you ever noticed that? If you haven't, well, it's obvious. Our politics tell us that, isn't it? You look at it and it's one extreme or the other. You ever get into an argument or you've never been in an argument, but your children have been in an argument. (laughs) And you've got to one-up the other one. And uh, it's our job to step in and de-escalate it. I don't always do the best job at that. We've just come through a section of scripture, the end of Matthew 25, where we've seen that emphasis on love for one another, that second greatest commandment. And in light of that teaching, it's easy to become hyper-focused on it, almost extremely focused on it. So much so that we may tend to forget there is a first greatest commandment. And I think it's for this reason that, as we'll see this morning, Matthew, in the beginning of chapter 26, through the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us a story, a story of love, a story of great love, of costly love, and it's going to teach us some important lessons. We'll begin, and we'll read here in a moment together in Matthew 26, and you'll notice before we get to that story, we are presented quite a contrasting scene. Rather than spoil it for you, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 26, and read along with me. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot may occur among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, why this waste? For the perfume might have been sold for a high price and money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother this woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, Wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, which is delivered through your spirit, penned by Matthew so many years ago. We thank you for the truth that it contains. We thank you for how it helps to guide us, to instruct us, to lead us into all truth. Father, we pray that we would be faithful servants, faithful slaves, that we would rightly steward the word that has been entrusted to us, that we would put it into practice. 
Father, help us this morning as we look carefully at this text, as we study the contrast between those plotting the murder of Jesus and the one who was anointing him for burial. Father, pray that you would help us to love you more as we look into this, as we unpack all that there is for us this morning. In your name, amen. As Jesus draws to a close his teaching to the disciples on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, Matthew uses that what should be, for most of us, now a familiar phrase. That phrase is, when Jesus had finished all these words. We've actually seen that four times previously. It marks off the divisions of Matthew, if you will. It, it marks a transition, a change of subject, a change of theme. Saw it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. We saw it again at the commissioning of the apostles, those inner 12 of the disciples. Remember, the disciples are more than 12. There's a lot of disciples following Jesus. But there were the 12, and they were commissioned there in chapter 11, verse 1. And then we see it in chapter 13, verse 58, as we see yet another transition in Jesus' ministry. And then we saw it at the, in chapter 19, verse 1, as we prepared for his entry into Jerusalem, the beginning of the Passion Week. And then we see it here. As the attention begins to focus on those last days of the Passion Week, as it focuses on what Jesus, well, Jesus tells us what the theme is. In those opening words, his crucifixion in two days' time. A quick reminder, the Passover is the biggest event of the year if you were an Israelite. It was a celebration of their delivery from bondage in Egypt. They had been sojourners in Egypt for 400 years. And for at least a couple of generations, they had experienced harsh, almost unbearable slavery. And it was onerous. They were beaten. They were downtrodden. They began crying out to the Lord for deliverance. And he did just that. Passover was instituted along with or was inaugurated with the tenth and final of the plagues. You remember the ten plagues of Egypt. That tenth plague, perhaps the most horrendous, the slaughtering of every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Without distinction of nationality and without exception, unless you had taken a pure, unblemished lamb, you had killed it, and you had put that blood on the doorposts, and then the angel of the Lord would pass over that house. That's where it was inaugurated, and the effect of that slaughter of the firstborns was so great that the Egyptians begged the Israelites to leave, from Pharaoh down to the least of them. They were throwing money at the Israelites, saying, leave, get out of here. That's, it's referred to as plundering the Egyptians on their way out. So great was their deliverance from the land of Egypt. And that remarkable deliverance was celebrated from that day forth. It was a reminder of God's salvation, but it was more than just a looking back. It was also a looking forward. It anticipated a future deliverance, a future salvation. One that was not from the chains of slavery, at least not physical slavery, but rather freedom from our bondage to sin. An even greater deliverance than that from Egypt. It would bring about the great rest for which Noah, the patriarchs, and Job longed to see. I'm going to assume you know the remainder of the story. How Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ 
is our Passover. And you recall at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit. So look back at the text with me. I want you to note one more thing here in these first two verses. Do you see that title that is used? It's a familiar title. Who is it that will be crucified? The Son of Man. Now we saw that title, that name for Jesus used last week. It it is a title for Jesus. Jesus used it of himself. But in that verse, in chapter 25, in verses 31 through 33... It's used to describe Jesus as a ruler, as a returning king, as a sovereign, as one who deals out judgment. Here, by contrast, it's used of Jesus as servant and sacrifice. In light of what we just studied and just heard of Jesus' teaching to his disciples in Matthew 25, it may appear a bit jarring. This same son of man who comes with his angels comes to rule and reign and to sit upon his glorious throne is the son of man who will be sacrificed on the cross, who will suffer persecution. But at the same time, we can look at it from this perspective. The fact that Jesus speaks of the son of man returning in glory just moments earlier, to reign on his glorious throne must mean that what Jesus said back in chapter 16 will happen Yes, he will die. Yes, he will be crucified. Yes, he will be buried. But he will rise from the grave after three days. His crucifixion is not the end of the story. From one perspective, it's the low point of the story. But from another, it is the climatic point of human history. It's what all of history is speeding toward. The solution to sin. The death of the perfect sinless son of God on our behalf to deliver us from the bondage to sin. That's the gospel. It's the gospel Jesus speaks of in verse 13. It's good news. It's this good news. Not just any good news. This good news. And that's what these final chapters deal with. The death, the burial, the resurrection of the son of man. So naturally, we would expect the scene cuts it cuts to where the murderous plot to crucify the Son of Man is being designed. In verses 3 through 4, we see the religious leaders gathered together with Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, there's something quite bizarre about this scene, and you've got to put yourself into the mind of an Israelite to understand it. You see, when the religious leaders were gathered together in the court of the high priest, they were in the process of purifying themselves, purifying themselves for Passover, so they would be ceremonially clean. John notes in John 11, 55, now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. They wanted to be ritually clean before offering sacrifices. You see the irony? They're ceremonially clean ceremonially purifying themselves for Passover while doing what in the court of Caiaphas? Plotting the murder of Jesus. This is beyond irony. It's utter wickedness and hypocrisy. They're proving everything Jesus has said about them up to this point, proving that it is true. What was it that he said back in chapter 23, verse 22? Or verse 27? Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, 
For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all sorts of uncleanness. Now, why are they doing this? They're doing it because they're consumed by greed, by a thirst for power, for authority. They saw Jesus as a threat to all of these things. And Jesus exposed them for their cruel and abusive leadership. They were afraid they would lose their power and their influence and their control over people. They were afraid that they would no longer be able to enslave the people under their false system of religion that they had created. They branch off of true worship of God. Now that's, yeah, there's, there's not much of more description. In fact, the scene cuts, again, rather quickly. Uh, the last word is they, just, they don't want to, they want to plot to kill Jesus. They want to do it in stealth. They want to take him away and make him disappear like any good gangster. And then they say, just, we can't do it during the Passover. We don't want to riot. And it cuts, it ends. And what, is presented next is a startling contrast. Matthew provides it to this setting and will leave the murderers plotting the religious leaders for this week. And instead, Matthew takes us to something that happened several miles away, a moment and a time that looked very different than this scene in the court of Caiaphas. It's in the town of Bethany, near the slopes of the Mount of Olives. Matthew inserts, verses 6 through 13 here, something of a parenthetical. Uh, He actually steps back in time by a couple of days. He goes from, notice, two days earlier is where chapter 26 picks up. Verses 6 through 13 take place four days earlier. He drops this parenthetical, this illustration back in, and this is not at all uncommon in biblical narrative, really in many narratives. It's quite common to find events or flashbacks sometimes dropped in out of chronological order. That's why it's important to pay attention to context. But this also isn't an accident. It's not like Matthew forgot about this story and thought, oh yeah, that's a good one. I'm going to shoehorn it in here. And suddenly remembered it. No, quite the contrary. Matthew inserts it here for a very specific theological purpose or purposes. First, note the contrast that is brought forward by Matthew's insertion of the events here. Jesus and the disciples are where? Well, they're in the home of Simon the leper. Now, we really don't know anything more about this Simon. There's a lot of Simons in the New Testament. Simon was one of the most common names. They've actually done statistical studies of common names. There's a whole fun discussion about that and the accuracy of the Bible and the uh, authenticity. But... Simon was an extremely common name, as was the name Mary and a few others at the time of Jesus, specific to this time. And so you would provide the description so you know which Simon we're talking about. Here it's Simon the leper. Again, that's it. We don't know anything more for certain about this Simon. But they needed to add leper to distinguish him from other Simons, such as Simon Peter or Simon the Pharisee. But it's interesting If you were a leper or had been a leper, I believe this is one of the lepers Jesus healed. If you had been a leper, why would you or would you want to still go by that name? A leper was an outcast. It was one who was looked down upon. The very fact that he goes by the term Simon the leper means that there's something about his leprosy 
something unique, something he wants to remember. I think, again, it's very likely that it's because Jesus healed him. And he looked back at his leprosy and remembered the time of leprosy because he could remember Jesus' deliverance from that. Interestingly, the very first miracle Matthew records in Jesus' public ministry is there at the beginning of chapter 8 of Matthew. And do you know what it was? The healing of a leper. The book ends, or Matthew bookends Jesus' ministry with lepers. Is this the leper who was healed that day in chapter 8? We don't know. Uh, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if it was. At a minimum, this was one we can infer who had been healed of leprosy. But again, note the contrast here. Compared to the religious leaders in the court of the high priest in Jerusalem, purifying themselves, where do we find Jesus and his disciples? In the house of one who was, at least formally, a leper. Leprosy, by its very definition, made someone unclean. Now, again, I believe he was healed, but they still don't mind associating with the name leprosy. There's, there's no pretense. There's no attempt to look like something other than they are. Quite a contrast. Here are the Jesus and the disciples gathering together. But there's more. You have Caiaphas, the arguably the most important, at least from the Jewish standpoint, the most important and powerful person in all of Israel. Called out by name, partaking in the murderous plotting. Well, what's the contrast? In Simon's home, there is, at least in Matthew's account, an unnamed woman. She's not even named. Now, we know from John's account that this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And she anoints Jesus. You see one who, a, a woman was on the lower rungs of society, typically. It's again, quite a contrast. Look too, where the religious leaders are plotting murder in Simon, are plotting murder in Simon's house, Jesus is being prepared for sacrifice. Again, where the religious leaders are motivated by greed and selfishness. This unnamed woman is motivated by love, sacrifice, and selflessness. There's more. You, can just, you just start to see just this crystal clear contrast between these two groups of persons. Between these two groups that have gathered around this same time. But it's not simply the contrast that Matthew wishes us to see. There's much more. See, the Spirit through Matthew wants us to observe this woman. How do I know that? Well, two reasons. First, there's a good bit more shared about this woman, and those details are there for a reason. Secondly, much more explicitly, Jesus says she will be remembered as long as this gospel is preached. So it's probably a good idea for us to pay attention to this woman. See what we can learn from her this morning. Look with me at the actions and the discussion that takes place around this woman in verses 6 through 13. This woman whom John does identify for us as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, comes up to Jesus and begins to pour this expensive perfume over his head, anointing him, reminding us of the anointing of King David by Samuel and other leaders. It was quite a bit of perfume. How do I know that? Well, in John, it cascaded down to Jesus' feet so that she uses her hair to rub the oil into his feet. Not only that, this perfume was expensive. 
was equivalent to a year's salary. By today's standards, it's worth at least 40000 perhaps much more. That's expensive perfume. Husbands, Valentine's Day is this week. As much as I love my wife, I'm not going to buy $40,000 perfume. Sorry, sweetheart. She would probably have the same response of the disciples, by the way. What a waste. Mary completes this act of great sacrifice and love. And how do the disciples respond? Indignant. Indignant, Matthew says. Interesting, Matthew is condemning himself here. He's one of those. John places most of this indignation on Judas, but Matthew makes it clear this was shared to some extent by all of the disciples. They couldn't believe she would waste that perfume. How, how, how could she? Especially when she could have used it to care for the poor. Has she not been listening to what Jesus has said? Care for the poor. I think their response in reference to the poor is one of the very reasons Matthew inserts the story here. Remember, Jesus has just finished teaching his disciples the importance of loving one's neighbor. And the last word was that care for a disciple who is poor and needy, perhaps imprisoned, was an indication of one's spiritual state. It's not a guarantee, but it was certainly an indication of one's spiritual state and whether they would even enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus has just elevated very highly caring for the poor. And so I think this provides a helpful balance. Balance we'll discuss momentarily. You see, Jesus will have none of the disciples disdain for Mary. He immediately comes to her defense and rebukes them. He corrects them, similar to how he corrects the disciples of John in Matthew 9.15, where Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. This is when the disciples of John and even some of the Pharisees came up saying, why are we fasting and you're not? Why are we obeying the law, at least from their perspective, and you're not? Jesus said, because I'm with them. It's time to feast. They can do those things later. Well, Jesus continues his defense of Mary by noting her belief in his words, that when he said he would die, she believed him and was preparing him for burial. And Jesus concludes by eternally linking Mary's actions to the gospel. That is, the good news of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. But why? Why such a commendation? Why such a proclamation at the end? It's a touching moment. It's one of great love. But what makes it so significant that it is linked forever with the gospel? How does it help to proclaim the gospel? I think there's at least three ways it does that. There's probably more, but I'm finite. First, it proclaims the gospel because it begins with right priorities. In some ways, this is the story of Mary and Martha revisited. Once again, Mary is being accused of not performing or acting correctly. She's a nonconformist. Or some might say she has wrong priorities. But once again, Jesus praises her choice as the better thing. Why? 
what he tells us right there in verse 10. And you may want to underline this. There's two words in English. To me. It was done to Jesus and out of love for Jesus. Once again, Mary demonstrates right priorities. Again, as I noted a moment ago, this is a, a bit of a corrective or a balance for each of us because we are prone to those extremes. Jesus has been teaching the importance of loving one's neighbor, of caring for others, of demonstrating one's care for the poor, for the hurting, for the imprisoned disciple, and how that serves as an indication of one's spiritual health. Pause there for a second. Think back to the well-known story of Mary and Martha. If you knew nothing else of the story, would you say that Mary was loving Martha by letting Martha do all the cooking and preparations and cleaning while she was at Jesus' feet? What about here in this passage? Was Mary loving her neighbors by breaking open that expensive alabaster jar of perfume and pouring it out all over Jesus' feet instead of going and selling it and meeting their needs when they might have been hungry, they might have been in prison, they might have been hurting, there could have been children in the streets who could have been fed? Was she loving her neighbor? Well, the disciples' response says that they certainly didn't think so. She wasn't thinking about the poor, they claimed. She wasted it. But in this corrective, what Jesus does is remind us that as important as the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as ourself, there is still the greatest commandment. And love for God, love for Jesus must always take precedent. The disciples were in danger of doing good out of obligation. They were in danger of forgetting that love for God is what really matters and what must motivate all of our good deeds. And so, a woman, unnamed in Matthew's gospel, corrects them. She humbles them by demonstrating her great love for Jesus. You see, the best efforts, the best works, the most generous gifts, they're all wasted if not done to and for God. And out of love for God. One can pretend to do good in order to assuage a guilty conscience. There's a, there's a lot of businessmen who are anything but godly, who love to give to the poor. Ultimately, it's to assuage a conscience, to make themselves feel better. It will be worthless in the day of judgment because it's not done out of a love for God. Even our good deeds, they're worthless if not done out of a love for God. It's that wood, hay, and stubble that Paul describes to the Corinthians in that day of judgment. Those works are burned up. They won't last. Now, Jesus does not negate caring for the poor. In fact, he even says in verse 11 that they need to care for the poor. He reiterates that they will have the poor with them and implies they should absolutely care for them when he is gone. But it's a matter of priorities and a reminder that our first love is Christ and the outflow of that love is to our neighbor. And if we neglect a love for Christ, we will not be able to rightly love our neighbor. There's a second lesson Mary teaches us here about the gospel. It's that loving Jesus is costly. The disciples claim it is all a waste. But they miss the key aspect of what she did, what we've already noted, the to me, Jesus says. And you see, the disciples would have been right if she had done it for any other individual, but she didn't. She did it for Jesus. 
And this act of love and spirit-led obedience was costly. In this case, it was monetary. But there's a truth we need to remind ourselves of because I think we become especially complacent in our culture. Love for Jesus is often costly. It may cost you friends. It may cost you a job. It may cost you family. It may cost you comfort. It may even cost you your life as has happened countless times through the centuries. Have you really counted the cost? It is worth it. It's like that pearl of great value or treasure hidden in a field. Jesus is worth everything this life has to offer. Are you familiar with the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus? It's a pretty well-known song. Many mistake it as a song being written about man's efforts and desire and decision of salvation. It's actually not the context at all. It's actually the reason, the misunderstanding, is why it's not included in many Reformed hymnals, because they felt it was too man-centered. But see, it wasn't written about salvation. It's a song not of decision, but of dedication after the Spirit's work of conversion comes to us from India. We don't have a lot of hymns in our hymn book from India. The story goes that it was a martyr's song. It was a member of the Garo tribe, a man named Naksang. He lived in the hill country of Assam and converted to Christianity. The local chief was so outraged at his conversion that he threatened to kill his entire family if he did not recant. After Naksang refused... The chief had his children lined up and shot one by one with arrows. Naksang replied, I have decided to follow Jesus. The chief then threatened to kill his wife. But Naksang is said to have replied, Though none go with me, still I will follow. After killing his wife, the chief threatened Naksang's life, to which he sang back, The world behind me, the cross before me. The chief then had Noxang killed. But the story doesn't end there. Noxang's testimony of faithfulness was so powerful that the chief confessed faith in Christ followed by many others in that village. Jesus has never promised that loving him would be cheap or easy. You cannot find it anywhere in your Bibles. If you've heard it, it's a lie from the pit of hell. Quite the contrary. We are promised hatred, trials, tribulation in this life. We give praise for the blessings we get. And there are many, and we give thanks to the Lord for that. But that doesn't mean that this life we should expect ease. Again, quite the contrary. And it's when those hard times come that only a love for Jesus that recognizes him as that Passover lamb, as the one who gave his life for you, Will it sustain you in those times? That type of love is needed to sustain you when the trials come. Seems like an appropriate time to ask, do you love Jesus? Do you truly love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? The only way you can truly love him like this is if you have experienced forgiveness from your sins. Because that forgiveness is the foundation to this type of love. If you've not confessed your sins and cried out for forgiveness because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then please do that today. 
But there's a third gospel lesson Mary teaches us in this passage. It's that a disciple of Jesus believes what Jesus says. Notice what Mary is doing. She is preparing his body for burial. Do you remember how Peter responded when Jesus said he was going to die? He said, pulled him aside. I mean, at least he did it in private. Jesus' response wasn't quite so private. But he pulled him aside and said, you are mistaken, Lord. Surely not. Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan. Unlike Peter, who tried to pull Jesus aside and correct him, Mary believes him and anoints him for burial. I have to wonder how many people today, even in the church, maybe especially in the church, love a Jesus of their own making. How many people want to have a Jesus who loves them but doesn't require righteousness? How many people want a Jesus who doesn't want them to forsake their sin? There's no such Jesus. Let me be clear, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ if you are not willing to accept everything that he has said. No matter how good, how bad, or how ugly it feels. Ignoring what Jesus says while claiming to love Jesus is just deceiving yourself. Love for Jesus believes what he says. It does not make excuses. It does not try to ignore the difficult things. True love for Jesus believes what he says and it acts on it. John tells us in his gospel, this is exactly what Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. Well, what follows in the rest of Matthew's gospel in these final few chapters and in the weeks ahead is a demonstration of God's great love for us and his plan to reconcile us to himself. The culmination of this plan that was set in motion before the foundation of the world. As Paul writes in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That is this gospel. This gospel that is proclaimed, and as Jesus says, everywhere it's proclaimed, the memory of Mary, the memory of this woman and what she has done would be told. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this poignant reminder this morning. This reminder of your great love for us and the reminder of our need to cultivate and ensure that we are developing a great love for you so that we can be faithful in that second greatest commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to serve and to care for those who are hurting in this world and around us. But it's done so that they may know your love as well. Help us to be faithful in loving you. Help us to be quick to hear your word and to obey it, not to question it, not to reinvent it, certainly not to deny it. Father, let us lay aside everything that entangles us on this earth 
Uh, Let us look forward and ahead to the cross, laying everything else behind. Father, we pray these things in your name. Amen.